morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. That was totally unnecessary. But uh, I'm privileged to be able to um, stand here this morning and present God's Word. So hopefully it will be an edifying experience for everybody. Uh, well, let's start this morning just with a, a quick little lighthearted joke. So at the end of his message, the pastor announced there will be a meeting of the church board immediately after the services. After the close of the service, the church board gathered at the back of the sanctuary for the announced meeting. But there was a stranger in their midst, a visitor who had never attended their church before. My friend, said the pastor, didn't you understand that this meeting is for the board? Yes, said the visitor. And after today's sermon, I suppose I'm just about as bored as everyone else who came to the meeting. So, hopefully, <laughs> Pastor Joe's laughing. He knew, it before. he knew the punchline before I even said it. So, hopefully you guys don't feel the same at the end of this message. But uh, before I forget, why don't we just, uh, again, lift this time up before the Lord. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come and to, to present your word, to have your word given to us. What a, a light to our feet and a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray this morning that you would um, illuminate your word, as was prayed earlier, that it would shine bright in our eyes and our face, and that we would receive it with gladness. And whatever conviction you lay on us, Holy Spirit, that we would go forth and we would use that to serve you boldly with conviction and with character and with strength and with power that only you give, Holy Spirit. So thank you once again. And we ask your blessing on this time together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, I want to give you guys a few statistics that are somewhat relevant to the topic that I'm going to speak about this morning. Uh, did you know that only 31% of those surveyed by Gallup report that they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in their church or in organized religion? 31%, that's less than a third. What does that say about the effectiveness of church of, of the church in terms of its ability to influence the world around us or even to influence each other as we sit here in these seats. About 46% of pastors under the age of 45 are considering quitting. That's almost half. 46% under 45 are considering quitting and 34% over the age of 45 feel the same. That's still over a third, even for some of our most tenured pastors. What does that number say about how the work of Jesus left for us to do is being divided up between our spiritual leaders and the rest of the congregation? And Barna found that 22% of boomers and 21% of millennials are attending church primarily online. What is that statistic, that growing trend? What does that say, that virtual attendance at church? What does it say about how congregations view their role in the church? A recent APA survey showed that Americans are extremely stressed out, as you'll see on the screen here. For women ages 18 to 34, 62% said that they feel completely overwhelmed by stress most days. And the same is true for 51% of men in this age group. So again, let me just ask this question. What does a young, stressed out population say about the effectiveness of the church in teaching its people the message of be anxious about nothing? And do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will put in your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? and the body more important than clothes. 
So looking at this chart, something is, is obvious here. You can see a trend from young to old in how stressed out people are. Now, I think there are a number of factors that play into this, but one of those factors, I think, has to do with the growing trend of the generations as they are getting, uh, as we move to younger generations, are moving farther and farther away from the, the Lord, farther away from the church. So according to the Unstack group, 42% of churches are planning to add staff in 2023. So that leads me to my, my final question here. If the pews are full and the body of Christ is acting according to the model laid out in the scripture, why would nearly half of the churches in America be planning and needing to add more staff to do work around the church? So let that, let that question hang in your mind for a couple of moments. And I'm, I'm going to reiterate, why am, I ask, why am I giving you all of these statistics? Why am I asking you all of these questions? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that these statistics show a healthy trajectory in the American Christian church today? Or is it an unhealthy trajectory that we're on? I think this chart answers the question. I think it shows the trajectory that we're on. And that leads me to the subject that I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, why do you guys think we're in an unhealthy trajectory? There are probably a ton of different reasons that we could talk about. I'm sure we could probably have a whole gripe session for an entire day to talk about everything that we see wrong going on in the world, everything that we see going wrong in the American church. But today we're just going to talk about one thing, one thing in particular. And this thing, I think, is it might be at the core, it might be at the heart, at the root of some of the challenges that we're facing, some of the things that we're seeing going on in the church today. And I think that this one thing um, is something that you're going to find probably you didn't expect it. It's something called church polity. Now, maybe some of you have never heard the term church polity. Um, at work, one of the gals that, that works for me, she calls me the fluffer. And she calls me the fluffer because she says, I use big words. And I use all kinds of crazy words and she doesn't know what the meaning is uh, of these words. So church polity, it, it really just means this. It means the former structure of governance of the church. How are we set up with our authority in the church? How do we approach governing the affairs of the church and the things that need to happen? So with that in mind, um, I want to venture out and say that this subject of church polity, I think this is probably more important than a lot of other things that we'll talk about generally in the church. Things like what, what version of the Bible do you read? Or what's your understanding of end times theology? Or what's your position on spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues? Or any other number of theological matters that we'll, we'll banter about and debate amongst each other here in the church. I think church polity is probably more important than all of those things. And, and here's why. I, I don't think that I'm overstating this. The reason I say this is because your understanding of church governance should have an immediate impact, a direct impact, on your understanding of your role in the church. And consequently, it should have an immediate impact on what you're going to do when you leave here today. What you're going to do Monday through Saturday your understanding of church polity should have an immediate impact on that. And I say should have an immediate impact because by this chart, it's obvious that it doesn't have an immediate impact for a lot of people, and some of whom even come and occupy a seat or a pew most weeks in church. It doesn't have that immediate impact. And why? 
I think the reason is because we don't think about it. And we don't think about it, and for that reason, I think we might be getting a few things wrong. We might have a few priorities out of whack. We might have some responsibilities put in the wrong place. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, At the end of the day, if what we talk about today has no impact on how we view our role in the church, and consequently what we do in the church, we really need to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's the Apostle Paul. He's challenging us. He's telling us to test ourselves and see whether we're in, our faith, whether we're in the faith. And again, I think that at the end of the day, if when we're done digging into this subject, it doesn't have a direct and immediate impact on us. We really need to just take a, take a second, pause, and do what the Apostle Paul says we should do and make sure that we're really in the faith. So the subject of church governance is really about this. It's about the relationship of authority that lies with pastors and elders and that of the congregation's authority. That's really what we're talking about here. So it's an authority question. And remember, it's God who designed this power structure, right? He put the structure in place. He's the one who said what he wants the church to look like. He set this whole thing up, put the wheels in motion, and and defined what the structure should look like. So we all know that with authority comes power, right? And in the wise words of Peter Parker's Uncle Ben, he said, with great power comes great responsibility. And so ultimately, folks, what we're talking about today is not about power. What we're talking about is responsibility, right? The responsibility that rests on you and rests on me. So before getting into the application part, excuse me, part of the message, let's make some observations and define some terms so we can make a right assessment and application moving forward. So if anybody's been through the new members class, and some of you are going through the new members class, by the time you get to week four, you're going to be talking about church governance. You're going to get a crash course on how Pastor Steve and how the church here looks at church governance. And let me flip to the next slide. Okay, so everything you ever wanted to know about church polity. We've got a couple crusty old guys on the screen there who are sitting there mulling over the scriptures trying to figure out what we should be doing, right? So this is the first model of church governance that's presented in, in the class that you take as a new member. The Episcopal model of government stresses the idea of a hierarchy of leadership, the most comprehensive and highly developed of which is the Roman Catholic or the high Anglican church models. So the biblical basis for such a model is rooted in the idea that Jesus is the founder of the church. He appointed its future governing officials, that is the 12 apostles, and they in turn delegate their authority by appointing others to do the work of the kingdom. So far, so good? Number two, the Presbyterian. In general, this form of government stresses the office of elders. If you read the scriptures, you'll see that that, uh, several places in the scripture, there is an office that is defined known as the office of the elders of the church. And the authority resides in a group of elders rather than just one person, an individual pastor or a monarch who would be over the congregation. This model is less centralized than the Episcopal model, but still has authority um, the con- of the congregation, in, uh, congregates in small populations within uh, the body. And the last, the final, 
congregational. This model stresses the role of individual Christians, all of you, and makes the local congregation the center of authority. So this is the question. Which one of the three is right? What kind of church governance do we here at Freedom Church follow? Can all three be right at the same time? Well, I think so. So what kind of, church, what kind of governance do we follow here? One way to describe it is Christ-centered, elder-led congregationalism. This recognizes all three aspects of church governance that we just looked at. So elder-led congregationalism, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you guys a definition of what elder-led congregationalism is to help us get our minds pointed in the right direction as we talk about this and how it should affect the lives that we're living as members of this local congregation and members of the broader church at large. Elder-led congregationalism is the scriptural conviction that the gathered church as a whole, that's you guys, as led by their elders, has final earthly authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true faith confession and who is a true gospel believer. That first sentence might sound shocking to some of us if you really haven't thought about it. What does it really say? It's saying that the congregation, you guys, are the ones who are supposed to decide whether somebody seeking to come into our midst has made a true faith confession, if they are a true gospel believer. I'm saying that's the scriptures are saying that's your responsibility to do that. So it is the church that has responsibility to confess and uphold sound doctrine. So again, it's not the pastor's responsibility, it's the church's as a whole responsibility to confess and uphold sound doctrine and join to their number those who credibly confess Christ. And, and this is the part that nobody likes to talk about, especially myself, but it is also our responsibility to remove from their number those who confess Christ with their mouth, but whose lives fundamentally contradict that confession. It's probably the least enjoyable part of being a part of the body of Christ. Kind of like a parent. How many of you like disciplining your children as parents? How many of you think that's fun? You look forward to identifying when your children has done something wrong and then exercising discipline over your child. Have you ever been so reluctant to want to do that, to not want to do that, and, and you just let it go? Could it be that maybe that's what we're doing in the church? We have this responsibility, and maybe we're abrogating some of that responsibility or just ignoring it altogether. So, the church is the final court of appeal in matters of discipline, which is the highest authority and therefore the highest responsibility in the church. It has its entire, uh, in the entire gathered congregation. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, which says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So let's pause there. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. That's the goal of what we're talking about here. The goal is not punishment. The goal is not to cut people down when we see them doing something wrong, when they're not living up to the expectation of perfection that Jesus Christ, quite frankly, set for us. That's not the goal. The goal is restoration. The goal is to have good perfect communion with one another as the body of Christ. And so when we do these things, when we take these actions as the body of Christ, we do it in love. 
We do it in kindness. We do it because we want to see us have good and complete fellowship with one another. And if we don't do that, we probably aren't going to experience that good, complete communion and fellowship with God and with one another that he wants us to have. So let's continue. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, again, Jesus was a Jew. And so he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy, which says, bring two or three witnesses. This is, this is to ensure that there's no false accusation. This is to make sure that if you think you see something going wrong, you bring a couple others with you and you're like, hey, look, I got this issue. I need your help. This guy denies it. Can you help me out here? And the other two look and they say, yep, we got an issue here. All right, let's go. And everybody and, and the, the three or four of them go along and they go to address the issue. If he refuses to listen to them, this is the final, this is the final. Like I said, this is the um, final court of appeal. Take it to the whole church. That's all of you. And I, I, want, I want you guys to notice, anywhere in Jesus' instruction here, did he say, take it to the pastor, take it to the elders, take it to the deacons, take it to the spiritual leaders within the church? Nope. We're dealing with it one-on-one with each other as followers of Jesus here in the church, we're dealing with it in a small group of each other, probably people who know each other, who have some level of intimacy with each other, who understand our problems, who know where we are in life. And if that doesn't work, then we're taking it to the whole church. And what does Jesus say we're supposed to do? What's the responsibility that he gives here? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Holy cow. Well, what's going on here? Paganism was seen as a direct challenge to Jewish monotheism and the worship of the God of Israel. So if Jesus is telling his 12 disciples, and that's who he's talking to here when he's, when he's giving this instruction, he's talking to the 12. He's, he's, he's saying to the 12 who are Jews, right? They're following Jesus, but they're Jews. He's saying, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So pagans are that direct challenge to Jewish authority. As a result, many Jews saw pagans as enemies of their faith and enemies of culture, the Jewish culture. And tax collectors, tax collectors were often viewed as traitors and collaborators with the Roman oppressors, right? They were responsible for collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire and were known not only for collecting those taxes, but for overcharging the people and and keeping extra money for themselves because they were abusing their authority and abusing their power. And so I find it very interesting that in the exact same instruction that Jesus is giving to his disciples where he says, you have this responsibility to exercise this authority as a body of Christ. One of the examples in how you're supposed to treat people is like the tax collectors who were abusing their authority. I think inherent in this example is a warning for us not to abuse the authority, not to abuse the authority that comes with that responsibility. So we need to be very, very careful as a body of believers when we gather together and we're addressing these really important matters, right? So second point that I'm going to make about this church polity. Jesus says to the... um, Yes. Jesus says to the church, 
that it has the authority to make this assessment and render this judgment because it has what are called the keys to the kingdom. And um, ultimately, it has the right to exercise the use of these keys to the kingdom. So let, let's read again in Matthew chapter 16. It says, and Jesus is talking specifically individually to Peter here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there's a connection between these keys to the kingdom of heaven and binding and loosening things on earth as it is in heaven. And later on in Matthew, we see Jesus say to the whole church, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this statement of binding in heaven what is bound on earth suggests that there is a connection, some continuity between the earthly church and the divine realm of heaven, right? What does that mean? The actions of believers on earth have consequences in heaven. My actions, your actions, our collective actions, they have consequence for all eternity in heaven. So in so much as our judgment aligns with the will of God, we will see the results of it borne out in the kingdom of heaven. So what does that tell us? We have to be really super diligent to make sure that whatever we're doing on this earth, that our judgments and our actions are in alignment with the will of God. What does that mean you guys need to be doing? What does that mean we need to be doing? We've got to be immersed in the word of God. We've got to know what that says inside and out because if we don't, are we going to make right judgments? Are we going to exercise the use of those keys to the kingdom properly? There's a huge opportunity for us to make a big mistake there if we're not really diligent and really focused on and, and um, spending time in God's word. So there's no mention of bishops, there's no mention of pastors or elders having any unilateral authority over the use of these, king, uh, these keys in this institutional charter in these passages. The New Testament doesn't give an example anywhere that I can find of elders or overseers unilaterally exercising the use of these keys over the kingdom. It's for the body, collectively together, the congregation. Third point, the Apostle Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, to confirm each of the, and, and this, this confirms each of the prior points that was made. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, we see Paul saying this in verse 3, that he has already passed judgment individually. Yet he exhorts the church to take action on an issue as a matter of their responsibility. So what is Paul saying in this particular passage? He's saying this, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. This is an important part. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So listen to what he says next. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment. So Paul's indicating that he's already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm with you in spirit. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So again, I want to emphasize, the goal, the purpose here is not punishment, it's restoration. That's the goal, and that's our job 
as a body of Christ. That's your role, that's my role, that's Pastor Steve's role, that's all of us together, that's our job. So if the church isn't healthy, if the church isn't going in the right direction, if that trajectory that we saw isn't quite right, can we really point the finger at this guy right here and say, hey man, what, what are you doing wrong? What, what? No, we gotta be pointing right back at ourselves and say, what is my responsibility? What haven't I been doing that has allowed this thing to go in a direction that isn't healthy? So where do the elders play into this then? What's the purpose of the elders? If it's all about the congregation, what's the purpose of the elders? Well, we see a little bit of that revealed in this particular passage. Elders' authority lies in teaching, modeling, and training. That's where the, that's where the responsibility and the authority of the elders lie. So we see it in these three verses, and we see Paul was... Uh, really showing us that model in the, the previous passage that we just read. So teaching, 1 Timothy 3.2, which says, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So it's the responsibility of the overseer, it's the responsibility of the elders to teach. Modeling. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over them, those uh, entrusted to you, but, and this is the important part, the bold highlighted part, being examples to the flock. So elders are to model to the flock, what is this supposed to look like? So elders among us today, we're getting a little bit of instruction on what you should be doing as elders in the church, right? And then finally, training. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be uh, prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service. So we're supposed to be training as elders, training the body of Christ so that they can do this. And we saw in the previous passage, if we go back, this is exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, I'm telling you, theologically, this is messed up. Like, you can't be doing this. This behavior, it's off limits. Let me, let me teach you that's wrong. Don't do this. Um, let me model for you. I'm passing judgment. I'm telling you, I've passed judgment on this man. This isn't what we're supposed to do. And so here's what you need to do. Let me train you. Let me tell you what you should do. Gather together so that all of you can make a right judgment on this. And if your judgment is the same as mine, if you find that my judgment is right, if you find that it's in alignment with what the scriptures teach, with what Jesus has been teaching, then all of you, what you need to do is cast this man out from among you. Why? Because that kind of behavior, not the person, but that kind of behavior is a cancer to the body of Christ. When you welcome in, receive, and accept sin amongst you, it is going to propagate and it's going to grow. Because, And I'm just going to give the example of when I was a young man, first came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 17 years old, going on 18 years old, and I don't know the Bible. I don't know theology. What do I know? I know that all the people that I see around me, they are Christians. So if I'm looking for what I should be doing, how I should be living, how I should be talking, what I should and shouldn't be doing, where am I getting my instruction from? Where am I getting my information from? Y'all, that's where I'm getting it from. I'm watching you. And so if you allow that in your midst 
those new believers who are coming in are going to look at what those people are doing and saying, oh, I guess that's what a Christian does. That's okay. So no, cast that out among you, from among you. Why? So hopefully that person can ultimately be saved and the rest of the body is not going to be infected with that cancer of sin among you. All right, so the fourth point. Paul explicitly tells the whole congregation in Corinth that it is their responsibility to judge. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged, right? So now you're saying it's our responsibility to judge? Yes, it is our responsibility to judge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. But now, uh, I am willing, I am willing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Folks, it is our responsibility as the body of Christ to ensure that anyone who is in our midst, who, who raises their hand and confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, that they also believe in their heart. That's what the scripture says. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's not enough just to say it. What is the evidence that you believe it in your heart? It's evidenced in the way that you live your life. It's evidenced in the things that you do. It's evidenced in the things that you won't do. Because if Jesus really is Lord, and Jesus says, hey, don't do this, and do that, you're going to listen to what he says if you truly believe in your heart that he really is the Lord, right? Yes. Absolutely. And so when we see somebody who's not doing that, it's begrudgingly, i, I got to be honest, I, I don't think that this is fun. There was, um, in, in the previous church that we attended, uh, there was a situation where there was adultery involved, and this model, I'm going to say, was followed exemplary. The individual who was in, in the sin of adultery refused to repent, refused to do what needed to be done to, to come into line with what Scripture teaches about biblical repentance and yielding his life over to Christ, and the elders made a judgment, and then the elders brought it before the congregation, and exactly this model, like we saw in 1 Corinthians is, is what was lived out. Are you guys ready to do that kind of hard work? Is that what you thought you signed up for when you came to Freedom Church? Because it is, regardless of where you go. If it's a Christ-centered, Bible-believing church, that's what you signed up for. So the next point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul urges the congregation to accept back a member to the congregation who has previously been disciplined. The passage reads as though the discipline was inflicted by the majority and the member should also be reinstated by the majority. Again, this is not an individual pastor or elder, a group of elders making the decision. This is the whole entire congregation gathered. So let's see. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and turning to a different gospel. So 
you guys are responsible for understanding what the gospel is. And if somebody is preaching a false gospel, it's your responsibility to know it and to call it out and to do something about it. And it's really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying, and are trying to prevent the gospel of Christ. But even if we, notice this, Paul is pointing to himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is saying, even if we, including himself, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you that they had already heard, let him be eternally condemned. Folks, it is our responsibility to know so clearly what Scripture says about the gospel, the whole gospel, that if somebody says something that is untrue, if somebody brings something to you that does not line up with God's word, you need to be like the Bereans. You need to check what they say against the word of God, and you need to be prepared to say, that ain't right. No, this is what scripture really says. Yeah, I'll stand up here and I'll, I'll, I'll preach a message to you guys, and you guys can hear what I'm saying, but if at the end of the day, something that I said wasn't true, you got to call it out. you got to say, John, you were off when you said this. You can do it on the side. Don't do it in front of everybody embarrass me. But <laughs> um, So that, that's point number six. And point number seven, I find this one really interesting. The punishment inflicted on him um, by the, the majority is sufficient for him. So I don't think that I could handle this responsibility. I don't think that I would want to handle this responsibility and have this authority if we weren't able to move in this direction. If it was just all about the punishment and it weren't about the restoration, I couldn't handle this message. This would be like, you know what? Y'all can have this church. I don't want to be a part of that judgmental nonsense because we're going to judge. But guess what? When there is repentance, what's going to happen? There's going to be forgiveness, and we're going to welcome back in. And just this week in youth group, we were going through John chapter 18. And in John chapter 18, we see a couple of of different characters. We see Judas, and we see Peter. They're kind of the focus in John chapter 18, and you guys know the story. What was the deal with Judas? Judas didn't just deny Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. Judas came up to Jesus' face to give him a kiss and betrayed him with a kiss. Peter, on the other hand, Peter was kind of cowering in the corners, in the shadows, hiding, so that even when a little servant girl comes over to him and says, hey, weren't you with him? He's like, I had nothing to do with him. Similar, similar, but very, very different. Both are denying Jesus, but one is betraying him, and the other is just in an act of cowardice. And at the end of the day, what happened? Peter was repentant. Judas was unrepentant. And I asked the kids a question at youth group. I was like, you know, if Judas had repented, if Judas had come to Jesus genuinely repentant, do you think Jesus would have forgiven Judas? 110%. And so again, I just want to emphasize the difference between somebody who's a brother in Christ who's fallen into sin and they need to be disciplined and they, they will repent, and they will come back, and guess what? We need to treat that just the way that Jesus would treat it. 
They're washed white as snow. They are forgiven. We don't keep coming back to it. We don't keep rehearkening on that, right? It's, it's, they're forgiven. They're a part of the body of Christ. Maybe things have changed and there's a different dynamic, but the point is there's restoration and there is genuine communion and you can fellowship with that individual and we need to be ready to do that. And that is a part of our responsibility and our, our authority as the body of Christ. And so... Um, The last point, seven, we see that churches existed without having elders. This is an interesting point. And so if churches can exist without having elders, then what does that say about where the authority in the church lies? Let's just take a look at two passages here in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So the church already existed, and, and here we see Paul and Barnabas coming, coming back and appointing elders after the fact. So we can be a church even without having the office of elder in place. It's something that needs to be there. Obviously, Paul's like, hey, we've got to finish this thing. We've got to go back and get these elders in place. Why? Because what's the role of the elders? Well, we just talked about it. You need somebody to train. You need somebody to model. You need somebody to point them in the right direction, right? Somebody who has that gift, The gift of teaching is exactly that. It is a spiritual gift that not everybody has, right? The gift of preaching is a spiritual gift that not everybody has. And so you want to have those people there, and you need to identify and appoint them and seek the Lord's uh, guidance in doing so, right? And again, he goes on to say, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I have directed you. So again, the church existed without the elders, but a church isn't complete without the elders. We, need, we still need to have them there. But again, there has to be some mechanism. God must have had some idea, some plan for how the church is going to function, even if you don't have an elder there, right? So I think that these points just emphasize and support the, the message that I'm trying to get across today, which is the responsibility that lies on the congregation that can't be abrogated to uh, the, the pulpit to the pastors, to the elders, to the spiritual leaders of the church. So what does this mean for us? How is this reality about church responsibility, um, structure, and the structure, how is it supposed to impact you and me? Congregationalism, elder-led congregationalism, gives the whole church a job. And the elders train the church to do that job. The whole church is responsible for a number of different things. Let's, let's talk about some of the things that you guys are responsible for. To attend regularly and interact with one another. And does that mean just on Sunday? No. You're not going to have that intimacy as, as a family if you only see each other for a couple hours once a week. That's not what a family looks like. What's another thing that we're responsible for? To preserve and promote the gospel. We've got to make sure that this thing stays true and right exactly as Jesus communicated it at the very beginning. And we've got to promote it. In our daily life, when we leave here, Monday through Saturday, we've got to be promoting the gospel. When we come and gather together with each other, we've got to promote the gospel. You've got to be a good example to your neighbor. Look left, look right. That person is watching you as an example. Look in front and look behind. They're watching you as an example. Make sure that you're setting yourself up as a good example. We're responsible to affirm, the gospel, affirm gospel professors by receiving and dismissing their members, as we already saw. 
we're responsible to disciple other members and to help them grow in maturity in Christ. How many of you realize that it's your responsibility to disciple newer believers and to help them grow in maturity in Christ? That's your responsibility. Do you feel equipped for that? Do you feel like you're ready to do that? Are you doing that? If you're someone who's been a a Bible believer, a follower of Jesus Christ for a number of years, are you doing that? Are you engaged in that work? Is it something that the Holy Spirit may be tugging on the strings of your heart right now saying, I can do more. I want a sacrifice of whatever it is I think is important so I can do this thing that I know God's calling me to do. To share the gospel with outsiders. That's another thing that we're called to. So when we join a church, when somebody says, I want to go to the new members class for Freedom Church, what are we really doing? I'll tell you what we're not doing. We're not signing up for a club with benefits. What we're doing is we're signing up for a job. That's what we're doing. Get ready to work, like Pastor Steve said. You come here and you say, I want to be a member of Freedom Church. You're signing up for a job. Get ready to work. So the authority of the elders is maintained in this model of elder-led congregationalism. The elders lead the church in their exercise of the keys to the kingdoms, uh, of the the keys of the kingdom. For instance, if a matter of church discipline arises, it's it is finally the congregation's decision whether or not to exclude that person from fellowship. If an elder or a group of elders, if the congregation doesn't believe that they're following scripture, it is the congregation's responsibility to say, we don't believe that that's correct. This is what scripture says, right? So unless an an elder is contradicting scripture, the congregation should follow the lead of their elders in exercising the use of the keys of the kingdom. So again, the elder's role is to train, teach uh, the members of the church to do their job. The elders do not do ministry for the congregation. This is an important point. The elders do not do ministry for us. They equip us to do ministry. That's what the role of the elders are. And guys, I think this is why we're seeing so many, when we look at the statistics, we're seeing pastors who are saying, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. Because work that we're supposed to be doing is being abrogated to them. If they're supposed to train and build up and equip the body, how can they do that if they're so busy out doing what we should be doing? I think of it like a factory. In a factory, sure, you've got an engineering manager, you've got a CTO, you've got a CFO, you've got a CEO, and you've got factory floor workers, and you've got people all over who are supposed to be doing stuff. Now, if the factory floor workers say... I'm not going to put those nuts and bolts in that thing and put that thing together. He's the CTO. He makes a lot of money. Why can't he do it? Is the factory going to operate really well? No. Well, in the church, if we have a job to do, and we're not doing that job, and we're like, well, look, Pastor Steve is here. The elders are here. They they can do these things. They can make those visits. They can minister to these people. Is the church going to operate really well? No. And we're going to see that trajectory going in the wrong direction. And folks, I think in 21st century America, that's what we have today. That's why I wanted to talk about this because I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, how many people I've talked to, how many people I know. And I'm n- n- not here. Freedom Church, you guys are awesome. I probably didn't even need to preach this message to you guys, right? But I can't tell you how many Christians I know, that's the way they live their life. They come on Sunday... They're here to be preached to. They're here to be encouraged. And then they go off and they live their life. Six days the way that they want. Even the rest of Sunday the way that they want. It's not set apart as a holy day. We need to change that. We need to be the model. We here at Freedom Church need to be different. We want to live our lives differently even than you see other Christian churches near us in New Jersey. 
they might be following this unhealthy model. They might be setting the pastor and the elders up on this pedestal to do this work where they don't belong. That work belongs with you. That work belongs with me. That work belongs with all of us. That responsibility belongs with all of us. And that's why I wanted to preach this message today because Pastor Steve has been encouraging us over the past few weeks to, to two things, like he, like he said. If you're all word and, and no spirit, then you dry up. If you're all spirit and no word, then you blow up. But when you're spirit and word together, then you grow up. And that's what he's been encouraging us to do is to grow up. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I know I'm honest with myself, I know I have some growing up to do yet. And I think everybody else here probably has some growing up to do yet. So I just wanted to encourage you guys knowing what your role is in this church and know you have a responsibility. Imagine you're given a responsibility at work and you don't do the job that you were given. At the end of the year, you're going to have a performance review, and boss is going to come and say, you know, you were supposed to be doing this, 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 and that, and the other, but really you only did this thing. Why aren't you doing this other stuff? I want to find every single one of us, when we stand before God at the end of this race that we're running, that he looks at us and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You ran the race, you did the work that I told you to do, and you can't do what you're supposed to do if you don't know you're supposed to do it, and so now you got no excuse. You know what you're supposed to do, Right? Amen. Last, last example I'm going to give you, last analogy, is um, I, I heard somebody else give a, a message on this, and he said that um, the responsibility that we take in church can be compared to home ownership. Are you guys renters, or are you owners in this church? If you're a renter, you're not going to do much to take care of the place where you live. You're going to call the landlord when something breaks you're going to not take care of the house the way that you would if it was yours because you know that you got it. You own that thing, right? Well, congregationalism makes you guys owners, not renters. You're not just renting a spot here at Freedom Church. You got to be all in. You got you to hold that mortgage and you got to be making monthly payments. All right? So go buy a parking spot. <laughs> So this isn't just about church government structure. It's about how people are held accountable to live in Christ. That's, that's what this is all about.